I'll tell you what, it's been a great series as we have been going through the book of Hebrews in the series called Hebrews, the Glory of the New Covenant. And I'm so glad that uh, you have joined us for this study. And again, I want to encourage you to get your Bible out. We are taking the teaching directly from God's Word, the Bible. And uh, there's just something with your eyes following along with a text that really helps to to bring it into place. Now, if you're in a place where you can't get your Bible out and read along, you're driving down the highway, that's fine. Uh, just, uh, you might want to look into the text later on. Don't take my word for it. This isn't the teaching of Mark Van Oos. This is the teaching from the Word of God, the Bible. It's radical stuff. It's revolutionary stuff that I know is really impacting my life, no matter whether I'm going through good times or bad times. It's so wonderful, and it's so good, because God is that wonderful and that good. Well, last time we were in Hebrews chapter 4, and uh, while we were there, we brought up the fact that the word rest is mentioned eight times in Hebrews chapter 4. And no other chapter in all of the Bible has as many uses of this word rest used in this fashion anywhere else in the Bible. So clearly, the idea of what is this rest and uh, the subject of this rest is front and center when it comes to the book of Hebrews chapter 4. And that's what we were really digging into last time. A very important point that we brought out last time was the fact that this rest that is spoken of here in uh, Hebrews chapter 4, as well as Genesis chapter 2 in the creation account, and even the account of Israel entering the promised land under Joshua, is not an entering, it's not us so much in our rest, but it's about us entering God's rest. And we raise the question, why would God rest? Obviously, he doesn't get tired and he doesn't need to recuperate. But the other logical reason why a person rests is because they finished the work. And that's the point. When we enter God's rest, we are entering his finished work. And because the work is finished, he, God, has ceased from work. Now, the word rest appears eight times here in Hebrews chapter 4. Seven of those eight times, the Greek word that's used is katapausis, which means primarily ceasing from labor and coming to a state of rest. Ceasing from labor or work and coming to a state of rest. And uh, we brought out the fact that the same Greek word in the Septuagint, which is the Greek Old Testament, in Genesis chapter 2, where it says, God rested on the seventh day from all his work which he had done. The Greek word for rested there is the same Greek word in the Septuagint, as we're seeing over here in Hebrews seven times in Hebrews chapter 4, catapausis. The idea in those seven Words, those seven times the word rest comes up, is cease, the idea of ceasing from work and coming to a state of rest. Think of it as this cease from work. And to really make this dramatic, I'm going to go through, read through Hebrews chapter 4, verses 1 through 8. And everywhere where the word rest comes in, instead of saying rest, I'm going to use the, the term cease from work. 
Listen to the impact of this. Therefore, since a promise remains of entering his cease from work, let us fear lest any of you seem to have come short of it. Indeed, the gospel was preached to us as well as to them, but the word which they heard did not profit them, not being mixed with faith in those who heard it. For we who have believed do enter that cease from work, as he has said, so I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my cease from work, although the works were finished from the foundation of the world. For he has spoken in a certain place of the seventh day in this way, and God ceased from working on the seventh day from all his works. And again, in this place, they shall not enter my cease from work, since therefore it remains that some must enter it, and those to whom it was first preached did not enter because of disobedience. Again, he designates a certain day, saying in David, today, after such a long time, as it has been said, today, if you will hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. For if Joshua had given them cease from work, then he would not afterward have spoken of another day. So there it is, Hebrews chapter 4, verses 1 through 8. And again, instead of using the word rest, which really is an incomplete thought, what we've done is we've done the literal translation from Greek, cease from work, and we could probably add and rest. All right, now let's move to Hebrews chapter chapter 4, beginning in verse 9, where our study begins today. And let's read verses 9 and 10, which says this, There remains, therefore, a rest for the people of God. For he who has entered his rest, God's rest, has himself also ceased from his works, as God did from his. Now, I said that in Hebrews chapter 4, the word rest comes up eight times. Seven out of the eight times is that uh, Greek word katapausis, which means to cease from work and come to a state of rest. But here in verse 9, where it says there remains a rest for the people of God, and maybe your translation uses the term Sabbath rest, the Greek word there is a totally different Greek word. This Greek word here in verse 9 is sabbatismos. Sabbatismos, and what that word means, literally, Vine's Expository Dictionary defines it as a Sabbath keeping. So, Hebrews chapter 4, verse 9, literally says, There remains, therefore, a Sabbath keeping for the people of God. Now, when I say that, there remains, therefore, a Sabbath keeping for the people of God. Those of you from a Jewish background are going, ooh, that's interesting. Well, let me explain for those of us who don't come from a Jewish background. Uh, We know from Genesis chapter 2, God completed his work in six days. He ceased from labor on the seventh day. In Genesis chapter 2, verse 3, it says this, Then God blessed the seventh day and sanctified it, because in it he rested from all his works, which God had created and made. So we have this idea of Sabbath. Uh, the Greek word, the Hebrew word, rather, for Sabbath is Shabbat, which literally means to cease from labor. Now, anyone who is a practicing Jew knows this full well. No one is supposed to work on the Sabbath day. Why? Genesis chapter 2, verse 3 says, Because 
God totally finished his work. He rested, ceased from his work, and he blessed the seventh day and sanctified it. That day, the Sabbath day, is meant to be a day of blessing and a day that is holy. Again, why was the seventh day blessed and made holy? Because God totally finished his work. So to work on the Sabbath, the day marked to cease our work, is to violate God's rest. By the way, which day is the Sabbath day in the New Covenant? Is it Sunday? Is it Saturday? Well, yes, actually it is Sunday, and it is Saturday, and it is Monday, and Tuesday, and Wednesday, and Thursday, and Friday. More precisely, the Sabbath day is today. Hebrews chapter 4, verse 7 says this. Again, he designates a certain day, saying in David, today. You know, it's funny how people argue over the Sabbath day. You know, is it Sunday? Is it Saturday? Could it be a day of your own choosing that happens to be your day off? Yet they totally miss what the new covenant says about Sabbath. It is not a particular day because we have already entered into God's rest. That rest is now and forever. It is a now condition. And remember, please, the new covenant rest is the finished work of Jesus Christ. So we have this word that keeps coming up in Hebrews chapter 4, catapausis, which literally means to cease from labor and come to a state of rest. And then we come to this particular uh, word that's translated rest or Sabbath rest that appears in uh, verse 9 of Hebrews chapter 4 and the idea of keeping the Sabbath. And again, keeping the Sabbath means ceasing from one's labor. In fact, more orthodox forms of Judaism go to extreme ends to steer clear of anything considered work. And remember, keeping the Sabbath is ceasing from work. So in order to avoid breaking the Sabbath uh, and to keep the Sabbath, they've created all of these laws and hedge laws to keep them as far as possible from from working on the Sabbath, from doing anything remotely looking like work on the Sabbath. And it's become just legalistic bondage. Uh, things like not turning on or, on or off anything that is electrical. Um, you're not permitted to boil or bake food. Carrying something out of your home or other building. Knotting, untying, marking. As a matter of fact, a friend of mine was visiting Jerusalem on a Friday late in the day, and their Jewish driver was very anxious to get them to their destination and park his car as it was close to sunset, the beginning of Shabbat, the Sabbath. Well, unfortunately, they didn't make it by sunset, and sure enough, right at sunset, a rock was hurled right through the window of their car, just missing my friend's wife. The penalty under law for violating the Sabbath, not keeping the Sabbath in such circles, is death. Exodus chapter 35, verse 2. So the idea of Sabbath keeping means to keep the Sabbath by ceasing from works. Okay? And if you look at um, Hebrews chapter 4, verse 9 in the ESV, English Standard Version, it says this, So then there remains a Sabbath rest 
for the people of God. And again, that Greek word sabiosmos means Sabbath keeping. Okay? So, again, I can't do this enough. We need to connect all the dots. God completes his work of creation after six day. And on the seventh day, what happens? He rests. He ceases from work. Why? Because he is finished. Okay? And then the idea of entering God's rest comes up under Israel, under the leadership of Joshua, as they're heading into the promised land. God went ahead of them, and we spent a lot of time last time in uh, Joshua chapter 24, and all the things, all the work that God did, even before they stepped foot into those places where they would uh, go in and settle. And now here, In the book of Hebrews, and what is the book of Hebrews about? The book of Hebrews is about the finished work of Jesus Christ. The finished work of Jesus Christ. Well, if God has finished his work, and we have therefore entered into his finished work, and God has ceased from work, There is therefore a mandate here to keep the Sabbath. How do you keep the Sabbath? By ceasing from work. Why are we ceasing from work? Because we are in God's rest. Why is God resting? Because he has finished the work. I know this sounds awfully repetitive, but the Bible's being really repetitive because I'm afraid we have a hard time understanding this. So verse 9 is absolutely mind-blowing. When I studied this carefully and the Greek underlying that uh, uh, seventh incident of the word rest in Hebrews chapter 4, there remains therefore a rest, sabiosmos, Sabbath keeping for the people of God. Now let's move to verse 10. There is a great big four that begins verse 10. And remember, whenever you see a clause that begins with the word for, it gives us the reason behind the prior clause. What was the prior clause? It was verse 9. Here's the reason for verse 9, verse 10. For he who has entered his rest, and that's a capital H speaking of God, has himself also ceased from his works as God did from his. Do you see it? He who has entered God's rest has himself also ceased from his works as God did from his. Friends, that is incredible. Yeah, it might be hard for us to believe, but you know what it is in the word of God. I'm going to say verse 10 again because it it seems too good to be true, but it is true. It says, for he who has entered his rest, and remember, who is it that has entered God's rest? Those who have been saved, those who have been born again. The moment they were born again, the moment they were saved, they entered God's rest. Why is there the rest? Because of the finished work of Jesus Christ 2,000 years ago. For he who has entered God's rest has himself also ceased from his works as God did from his. So the principle of Sabbath keeping in verse 9, and remember, 
Keeping the Sabbath is stopping work, ceasing from works. And the reason why we do that is because we have entered God's rest, his ceasing from work, because God has finished his work from the foundation of the world, has himself also ceased from his works as God did from his. I know this is soaking in to our hearts and our mind. In fact, I really feel that we need to stop for a moment here and actually pray. (laughs) Because if we try to grasp this with our human mind, it's almost like trying to grasp a a greased pig, you know? (laughs) You're trying to catch a greased pig. That's awfully hard. It just keeps slipping out of your grasp. But see, as the Holy Spirit brings us understanding God is able to make it possible for us to understand. So let's let's just pray about this right now. Father God, I just thank you that you are this good. You are so amazingly good and so amazingly wonderful. You are the God of all grace. You are the God of all love. It's because of your great love that this kind of grace exists. And Father, with this truth that we've been absorbing, to this point in our study of Hebrews, and particularly right here, Father, in Hebrews chapter 4, verses 9 and 10. Father, we refuse to try to grasp this merely with our human intellect and understanding and wisdom. Lord, we confess our need for you. And Lord, our need for you to to reveal Christ to give that spirit of wisdom and revelation and the knowledge, the firsthand experience of him. And Lord, that you would, through the spirit, illuminate, turn the light on so that we can see the the truth and the reality of this, so that we begin to grasp it in all of its dimensions and implications. And Father, we just thank you that as we continue to move through the truth of your word in the book of Hebrews, and you continue to unfold Jesus and his finished work, Father, we trust you to do a revolutionary work in our life. In Jesus' name, amen. Now, a person might be tempted to say, okay, what's the point? What do we do with this? You might be saying, Mark, okay, I can see it says cease from work. Are you telling us to string up the hammocks and <laughs> quit work and just lay around all day? Well, of course not. That's not what we're, t- what we're saying here. What we're talking about is a life that is just embedded in the grace of God, that is resting in the grace of God with an understanding that that our life is not going forward to do certain things so that we get certain things or that we do certain things so that we become certain things because the truth of grace is that we have gotten all. God the Father has done all, poured all into his Son. Colossians chapter 2 verse 9 says that all the fullness of the deity dwells bodily in Christ. And verse 10 of Colossians 2 says, and you are complete in him who is the head of all principality and power. Ephesians chapter 1 verse 3 says that God has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in heavenly places. In fact, you go through Hebrews Uh, the first three chapters, it's all about these amazing riches that we have already in Christ. 
We are complete in him. We are not a construction project. We are not, we don't have a sign that's hanging around that says not finished yet. He has finished with us. You say, Mark, then why, why am I struggling? Why am I sinning? Why am I having all these problems? The problem is that we are not um, walking the walk of faith where we are embracing the truth that all is done, all is complete, and that we have all because we have him and he has us. And so we go about all these activities, all these things that we think will get us the blessings, the things we need, or we do all these things to get us the favor that we need from God. God is saying, you've got it all. Hey, let me let me point out another scripture. First Corinthians chapter 15, verse 10 is an amazing verse. Uh, the word grace appears in this one verse four times. And the context of this verse, Paul is talking about the gospel and the fact that Jesus Christ uh, died and rose again. And, and he's talking about the other apostles who witnessed these things. And then he speaks of himself and he says, you know what? I don't even deserve to be an apostle. I am the least of the apostles, verse 9, who am not worthy to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. I mean, the apostle Paul, when he was Saul the Pharisee, failed God incredibly. I mean, talk about fails. Saul the Pharisee was the great fail who missed God, but thank God God didn't miss him. He says, because I am the least of those apostles, I'm not worthy to be called one because I persecuted the church. But listen to this, verse 10, but by the grace of God, I am what I am. So Paul's real identity, real condition wasn't based on his failure. It was based upon the grace of God. I am what I am by the grace of God. And listen to this. And his grace toward me was not in vain. God's grace toward Paul and toward anybody who is in Christ does not fail. Listen, God will not fail with you. You might fail with you. But your salvation, your life as a Christian isn't dependent upon you. God won't fail with you. And he says, God's grace toward me was not in vain, but I labored more abundantly than they all. Now, who could question that the apostle Peter got a lot done? Or the other apostles, John, for instance. And yet Paul, unabashedly giving glory to God, says, I did more than they did. He reached more people. I mean, most of the New Testament is authored by the Holy Spirit through Paul. I labored more abundantly than they all, but look at the qualification. Yet not I, but the grace of God, which was with me. So there you have it in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 10. That's what grace can do. And that's the place where we are. This place of, of keeping the rest. We're not, there's nothing we needed to do to get into the rest. We're in it. The tendency is we want to strive and struggle and work and do all these things, do to get from God. And God is saying, stop it. Jesus did it all. You've got it. Live out of the place 
of fullness. The, the just shall live by faith. And as we continue to walk through Hebrews, again, this will become clearer and clearer and clearer. We are in God's finished work. Work has been done. God has accomplished it. It is finished. He is at rest. Therefore, we are at rest. I have to move along. I wish <laughs> I wish I didn't have to move along, but I hope that we got this idea and it's starting to really soak in. The Sabbath rest, Sabiosmos, is the place where we cease from our labors, our struggling, our striving, our trying, and because we have already entered God's rest, his cease from work. Remember, that's not a second experience in the Christian life. That's your first experience. It couldn't be possible, the Christian life, without the entering into the reality of Christ's finished rest. Now, the next several verses are powerful verses, and they speak sort of in two ways that are aimed in application to the unbeliever. Let me start, though, from the general principle, uh, and let's get ourselves back to Hebrews chapter 4, where it says, uh, and I'll go ahead and I'll read verses 11 through 13. It says this, Let us therefore be diligent to enter that rest, lest anyone fall according to the same example of disobedience. For the word of God is living and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the division of soul and spirit and of joints and marrow and is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. And there is no creature hidden from his sight, but all things are naked and open to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. Again, that's Hebrews chapter four, verses uh, 11 through 13. Here's the principle. The principle is God's word is that powerful. It's not dead. It's not stagnant. It's living. It's powerful, meaning effective, and it's sharp. It can cut through fleshly efforts, fleshly self-righteousness, and reveal the true condition of a person's heart. Now, in application here, it's speaking of that person who has not yet entered into Christ's rest. He has not placed, by the grace of God, exclusive faith in Christ alone for all. This is an unsaved person. Again, many admonitions coming up, and they're very strong in Hebrews. Uh, and I think the extra strength is, is really a sober warning to people who think somehow they're right with God and the basis is their own righteousness and not the basis of Christ alone. And so it's like, you know what? God God can see through you. He knows your real spiritual condition. You're not hiding anything. That's why it says right at the beginning of verse 11, let us therefore be diligent to enter that rest. That entering into that rest is by believing on the Lord Jesus Christ. Let me just say this again to the larger principle about the Word of God being living and active. Uh, that the, the Bible, the Scripture, is so powerful. It's not a normal book. It is powerful. It is alive. It does work. And it has this way in, in, in our lives of piercing even to the division of soul and spirit. Now, the soul is... Uh, mind, emotions, and will. The Spirit is our real person in Christ. For the person who is dead, 
it reveals spiritual death that is in operation. It says also, and of joints and marrow, and is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. The person who is unsaved, in Jeremiah chapter 17, I believe it says that the heart is desperately wicked. Who can know it? It is evil. It is wicked. It is dark. It is in a condition of death. And so it is the mercy of God to reveal to the sinner their death condition so that that sinner abandons faith in self, which is self-righteousness, and places exclusive faith in Christ and his finished work on their behalf. That's the key. That's the principle that's coming out in those three verses. Let's move on. Beginning in Hebrews chapter 4, starting in verse 14, and running all the way through Hebrews chapter 5, chapter 6, chapter 7, chapter 8, chapter 9, chapter 10, is going to be largely in these, from this point forward, through Hebrews chapter 10, a focus on Jesus Christ and his finished work. Now, uh, there's a little bit of a of other matters that are brought up in Hebrews chapter 5, but the focus is Jesus. Now, so let's read verses 14 through 16 and wrap up our study here in Hebrews 4. Seeing then that we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens. Notice the past tense. Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but was in all points tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us therefore come boldly to the throne of grace, that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Okay, verse 14 says, Seeing then that we have a great high priest. You know, it's not about you or me or about what we've done, but what about, it's about Jesus and what he has already accomplished for us. You see, the greatest thing we can see is that we have this great high priest and this great high priest, and he is a great high priest, has done it all. Just a little note, a priest is one who performs duty in service between God and men. He he represents an intermediary or go-between between God and man. And the high priest is Jesus, and he has finished it. You see, that point that we have this great high priest, Jesus, who has done it all, is the whole point of the new covenant and the book of Hebrews. That's why it says, let us hold fast our confession. You know, I think that uh, there can be things in life that can pressure us out of this place of resting in the sufficiency of our great high priest and his finished work. He's already done it all, got it all done here on earth in his 33 days. And then he obeyed and All the way to the cross, the priest became the sacrifice, offering his own body and blood himself. He died. He rose again. He's now seated at the right hand of God the Father. All done. Hold fast your confession. Verse 15 has something really powerful for us. It begins with the word for. The reason for this is we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but was in all points 
tempted as we are yet without sin. You see, what's embedded in that statement is sympathizing with weaknesses means we are weak in and of ourselves. He was tempted because we are tempted. But you know what's really powerful here is it says that Jesus was in all points tempted as we are. You know, the Lord Jesus Christ um, dealt with the devil directly. You know, Satan is not omnipresent. He is a spirit being that can only be in one place at one time. He's not omnipresent like God. And so most of us aren't dealing with the old goat. We're dealing with some delegated uh, satanic uh, spirit, you know, some demonic entity uh, working under the marching orders of Satan. Jesus himself faced Satan directly, personally. And Satan loaded Jesus down. He, you know, I, 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 uh, I don't have it. I'm not tempted to smoke, for instance. Okay. So the devil doesn't tempt me with smoking, but Jesus was tempted to smoke, you know, or that kind of dependence kind of thing. Um, you might have a particular struggle that I don't have because the devil has a certain kind of pattern with your life uh, that takes advantage and exploits certain weaknesses that he may take a different tack with me. Jesus got it all. He got all the temptations. He got it all blasted at him full points. And it says that he was tempted in all points yet without sin. And you know, because Jesus Christ did that, he is a sympathetic high priest. You literally have someone who says, look, I understand this weakness and I understand the temptation. But the really good news is that Jesus didn't succumb to the temptation. He, being God, overcame. And that's why he is such an effective high priest. We get to verse 16 that says, based on that, let us therefore, because he is a sympathetic high priest that was in all points tempted as we are without sin, let us therefore come boldly to the throne of of grace. Stop right there. It's not a throne of law that's looking you down and saying, you did that wrong, you did that wrong, you did that wrong, you did that wrong. It is a throne, which is the place of the rulership of a king. It is a throne of grace. Grace is God's unmerited favor. It's God loving you, blessing you, accepting you, not because of anything you've done or not done, but simply because God is love. God is that way. We come boldly before a throne of grace. And it says boldly. We don't have to hesitate. We can come in boldly. Why? To obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. You know, we do have this great high priest who has passed through the the heavens. That's why we can do this. And we can do so without timidity, without fear or wondering if God will accept me or bless me. And, you know, it says to obtain mercy. You don't get mercy unless you're guilty. And you're not guilty unless you've done something wrong. Anybody out there without sin? I need mercy. You need mercy. And we obtain mercy from that throne of grace. 
And it says that we find grace at the throne of grace to help us in time of need. I am needy. You are needy. And God has thrown open the doors. He says, come on in. Come in before this throne of grace. Oh, this is so wonderful. As I conclude our podcast tonight, I want to issue a religion warning. (laughs) You know, it's so easy for us to think that this is all about forgiveness and going to heaven. Now, please thank God for his forgiveness. And thank God that we are going to heaven because of Jesus Christ. But this great salvation is much more than forgiveness and going to heaven. You see, religion would say, well, my past is covered, sort of, and my future is covered. My past is covered because I'm forgiven, and my future is covered. I hope so. But religion says I am marooned in the right now. Well, what do we call a child who is abandoned by their parent? We call them an orphan, right? Is God abandoning you now? No. Are you God's orphan? No. Religion makes God out to be an abandoning, orphan-making God. Yeah, I took care of your past and I took care of your future and, well, you're stuck on your own in the now. You know, even the forgiveness of religion is cheap. It, It has us confess each and every sin every single time in order to be forgiven. That is a misuse of 1 John 1, 9, that's taken completely out of context. We have a perfect forgiveness once and for all. You know, the real gospel says that Jesus is all we ever need, that Jesus did it all for me. And the reason why God did all is that he loves me. John chapter 3, verse 16, Romans chapter 5, verses 6 through 8, 1 John chapter 4, verses 9 through 10. The real gospel says that Jesus has my past, present, and future covered. The real gospel says that Jesus saves me right now. The real gospel says that God does not leave me an orphan. He comes to me. John chapter 14, verse 18. The real gospel says that God's work is finished. He is at rest. Therefore, I am complete in him and I live and exist already in his finished work and rest. This is what Hebrews is all about. And God says to us, come boldly, child of God, to the throne of grace right now. You need mercy. You can get it right now. You need help in time of need. You find grace before the throne of grace. Religion says that God is dead in the now. Real Christianity says God is living and active right now. Religion always puts God in the past tense or the future tense, never in the present. The real gospel recognizes that God is the great I am. God is ever in my present right now, right here with me. Be sure to look at Hebrews to the glorious truth of the real gospel. Friends, don't default to religion mode. Hebrews is not about what you do for God. Hebrews is about what God has already accomplished for you and you are in it and he is with you and you are blessed right now. Religion ignores and disregards the repeated statements in Hebrews about Christ's finished work done perfectly forever and religion builds flimsy theologies on a single verse here and there like 
First uh, John 1 9 as the case for an incomplete, unfinished forgiveness where you got to keep asking for forgiveness all the time. That's not true. In fact, uh, let me really cement this with a powerful statement that arises out of Hebrews chapter 10, verse 10. And it says this, well, let me go to verse 9. It says this, behold, Jesus is speaking and says, I have come to do your will, O God. Jesus takes away the first covenant. That's the covenant of law, the covenant that says do and fail and doomed that he may establish the second, which is the new covenant, the covenant of grace. Listen to verse 10. By that will, whose will? Jesus' will. By that will, we have been sanctified. That means made holy. That means set apart. That means made God's. We have been, past tense, sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. How many times? Once, once, once. And then in verse 14, it says this, For by one offering, he has perfected forever those who are sanctified. That's in Hebrews chapter 10, verses 10 and 14. Let's pray. Oh, God, we worship you and we praise you, Lord, for such a great God, such a great Savior, such great love and such a great salvation. And Lord, we just take this moment to enjoy it, just to relax. And Lord, we trust you to help us to connect the dots and see Jesus. We connect you. We we trust you, Lord, to be able to Turn the light on so that we can see this wonderful, glorious gospel, this wonderful, glorious new covenant, this wonderful, glorious Savior, and wonderful, glorious salvation through the light of your word and your spirit. And Lord, we know that you are already doing wonderful things in and through us for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.